0: Hello, I'm Mark Trikel, and you are listening to With Flying Colors, the podcast where I interview subject matter experts to provide credit union leaders with tips on how you can achieve success with NCUA and pass your exam with Flying Colors. Today is part two of NCUA's exam priority letter. There's so many priorities this year, up from 11 when the highest ever before had been seven, that we decided to break this into two podcasts. And with me today, I have two former NCOA staff that are part of my team in my consulting business, and they are Steve Farr and Todd Miller. Steve, if you could introduce yourself before we get
1: going here today. Hi, Mark. Yeah, always glad to talk to credit union people. Having spent 30 years in the industry with NCOA, about half of it actively in the field and the other half working out of the central office working on policies and regulations and the NCUSIF reserves. So my background was enjoyable and ended up being pretty well-rounded.
0: It did indeed. Todd Miller, if you could introduce yourself.
2: Morning, Mark. I was retired in June of last year after spending 31 years with NCUA. Unlike you and Steve, I avoided the regional or central offices, and I spent all my time in the field retiring, eventually as a director of special auctions.
0: Very good. And if I do say so myself, you two are two of the best problem solvers I ever met at NCUA, which is why I recruited you when you thought you might be shifting into retirement. I'm so excited that you helped me with credit unions I've learned a lot from you, and let's try and teach some of what you taught me to credit unions during this adventure we're on. So, with that, let's jump into what we're going to do here. Now, if you listen to the first podcast, what our approach here is, we just walk through them in order of priorities. As I mentioned, there are 11, there have only been seven before. So, NCUA has expanded the scope of their priorities. We went through the first seven, and we have four more to go through. And then NCUA, in addition to the priorities, included some other topics at the back end, and we'll talk through those shortly as well. Lastly, I'll say these are going to be 10,000 foot looks at these. We will likely be doing separate podcasts on most of these topics. We've already recorded the capital adequacy, which was touched on a little bit in part one of this topic. And the first item, which is item number eight, is loan participations, and as I mentioned previously, some topics hit this letter every year. Some topics are new this year, and loan participations is a topic that's new this year, and not only is it new this year, going back as far as 2017, loan participations has not been specifically highlighted in this letter, so that means something. With that, let me know your thoughts on loan participations as it relates to the priority letter.
1: Thanks, Mark. I'm going to speak to that issue because I was looking at why didn't put this in the letter? Well, became real evident to me when I was looking at a financial performance report for the industry and that loan participation's growth is just much more than it's been in any prior years. It was 25% annualized through September. So there's much more activity going on in this area So essentially, if it's growth in that area, let's take a look at it, make sure we understand why and that it's being done in a safe and sound manner. In order for the participations to work well, both the parties in that have to be doing their job well, the originators and the purchasers, and both have their duties that have to be completed well for this whole item to not become a problem within the industry. The uh, participations are well controlled on a high level within the regulation 701.22 that speaks to the requirements of both originators and purchasers. But it really comes down to originators doing a good job of not selling off just terrible stuff they don't want to hold and purchasers doing a good job of their due diligence to make sure that they're not buying somebody else's crud. So this one really comes down to the institutions that are especially purchasers. do your due diligence and make sure that you're very comfortable with and know what you're buying, who you're buying it from. And then once you have it, you need to be able to monitor and control that. So you have to have the structure in place at purchase monitoring throughout the life of those loans.
0: Very good. and As I mentioned in part one, if you're going to do it, do it right is another way of saying some of what you said there, Steve. But what you said is spot on. I will say that it's growing. There are credit unions that have excess demand and there are opportunities out there where credit unions that are smaller, that might not have the ability to get loans out, can provide some liquidity to the other credit unions that have the excess loans. And again, if they do it right, it can be a win-win. If you do it wrong, it can cause all sorts of challenges for you. So it's a tool in their toolbox. NCUA just wants to make sure that if you're gonna do it, you do it right. And the due diligence that you referenced there are third party due diligence letters to credit unions that play key in this type of arena. Any other thoughts on automobile lending before we move on to our next topic? All right. So next up is fraud, which is on the 2022 letter. It was not on the last three years prior to that. And then it was on in 2018 under the Internal Controls and Fraud Prevention. So I'm sure that we have quite a bit to say on this topic. And with that, let me know your thoughts on fraud as it relates to this letter to credit unions.
1: Yeah, this one's interesting. There's three sentences on this subject, but I'm sure to all of us uh, experience in the field, it means much more to that. It says that off-site procedure many credit unions over the last years has increased the potential fraud risk. Well, that's for certainly sure. We talk about increased opportunity for fraud because of the off-site nature. It's not just off-site exams. Many of the audit procedures are off-site. In my experience with credit unions, when I was active in the field, was identified fraud or came across fraud in a fair number of institutions that hadn't been identified before. And it was always because of something I observed with generally a staff member. One was as simple as listening to a conversation of a person really high up in lending function about he was enamored with his fake Rolex it just struck me as this guy, some of these things are really overly important to him in terms of status and that. So I thought, I'll go make sure I, that we give his account a close look. And sure enough, he was committing fraud in order to be able to support his lifestyle. Now, if examiners aren't in there and hearing those discussions and observing people, those opportunities for us to identify fraud aren't there so much. I'm sure you guys have other experiences that would be interesting to hear. We've all had some interesting
0: challenges in this arena, especially having spent so much time in Special Actions. Todd, any
2: thoughts? Just a couple. Steve mentions opportunity. If you leave your doors open, eventually someone's going to walk in and take something. I think there's a couple things with COVID. Credit unions, not only are they off-site, but they've been working really hard to help their members too, which kind of lets your guard down a little bit. It's interesting in my career, most of the frauds were almost found by accident. And a lot of them, it's credit union employees tell you something, or you hear someone else say something. I think a couple times in my career, I've had an employee, they're scared to report something within the organization. And I had one person one time alert me to an employee fraud. And it's like, why didn't you talk to the supervisory committee? Or why didn't you just take this to your CEO? And it's like, well, I've been here five years. The person I've been reporting on or telling you about has been here 25 years. I'll get fired if I report it. So they let you just tell your examiner that. Other things that have happened, I've had crediting employees just, you didn't ask for this loan file, but maybe you should look at it because they're uncomfortable and uncertain what to do within their organization, even though they know something inappropriate is occurring. And a lot of frauds get found that way. And here during the COVID environment, we're not having those human relations. They can't walk into the room and put a jump drive on your desk and say, hey, maybe you should look at this. And so there's just a lot of uncertainty created by that environment and opportunity is increased. And I guess I would just say one other thing is, When you have economic uncertainty, fraud always increases in those environments. So we kind of have a trifecta going on here in that. We have this economic uncertainty, which leads to increased fraud. We have a greater opportunity for fraud just because of COVID and all the offsite posture Auditors are off-site, examiners are off-site, employees are off-site. So it just creates an increased potential for fraud to occur. And I'm sure some is out there. Hopefully they're little ones and they don't impact credit significantly. But you can be sure that fraud is going up. And I'm sure it's making NCUA nervous because some of their biggest losses were frauds.
0: You know, a lot of little losses and a handful of large ones, but the large ones can take a big hit out of the insurance fund. As Steve, one of the things you were talking about is the gentleman with the Rolex watch and your conversations with him. And then you dug and you found some things. I was in an exam when I first started within the first year or two. And on a lunch break back in the credit union's lunchroom, and a talkative teller came back and was talking about things and then started asking about what happens when somebody gets caught stealing money and do they prosecute and all these things. And we had a discussion about Cumis and losing your bond. I completed the exam. Next time I came back, that teller wasn't there anymore as she had been taking money out of the till or another account, a dormant account. And I didn't take that next step. Your radar was a little better than mine in that instance, but in hindsight, being 2020, it all started to make sense. And Todd, you talked about a couple of things. You talked about the economic pressure leading to more fraud. You talked about the opportunity since credit union staff are not on site. And since NCUA staff are not on site, the opportunity is greater. And there's the, what's it called? The fraud triangle. The third one is rationalization and people who feel like maybe they're underpaid compared to their peers or that they have an issue that they need to deal with. So when you get rationalization, you get opportunity and you get pressure, they call that the fraud triangle, the trifecta, if you will. And that can lead to somebody doing something that they might not otherwise do. I'm sure that NCUA wants to get back on site when they can, but in the meantime, I'm sure they're also doing some things to try and get their arms around determining what's going on in this arena. Obviously, NCUA's exams are not fraud audits. CPA exams are not necessarily fraud audits. They're closer to the ability to catch fraud. And then, of course, there's the whole internal control side of things. So great discussion on fraud. You can tell that gets our juices flowing and reminds us of some more stories that we've had from the past.
2: Next up is LIBOR cessation planning. Thoughts on that? I'll take this one, Mark. This one has been on the priority list for three years. Of course, when we get into next year, June of 2023, LIBOR is going to end entirely. But being as it's been on the priority list for three years, NCUA has been—they have a LIBOR preparation worksheet. They've been assessing this for a couple of years. I think most credit unions. Almost all the credit are well-positioned for the end of LIBOR. It's gonna be on the list until it does go away. They just wanna make sure credit are staying current with it. They have alternatives worked out. But overall, I think the industry is in good shape when it comes to LIBOR. I think almost all the credit have done their due diligence. They know where their risks are. They know how they're gonna deal with them. And they're very minimal at this point in time. It's on the letter, it's towards the bottom of the letter. But I do think most credit unions are ready for it.
0: Okay, great. Great summary. Last up, we have interest rate risk. Thoughts on interest rate risk as it relates to the priority letter?
2: Well, I think in this environment, credit unions are in the business of buying and selling money. And right now, buying money or bringing money in from depositors. They're doing this at rates that are at all-time lows. and. There's just a great deal of uncertainty of which way rates are going to go. No one ever knows. But when you're at all-time lows, you know that they're going to go up. And I think the agency just is worried about what credit unions might do in response to that. When you have low rates like this, earnings are challenged. And credit unions really only have a couple ways to make interest margin, and that's take on credit risk or take on interest rate risk. And I think the agency is just concerned how the – Credit unions are going to choose between those two options. And the credit risk was at the top of the list. The interest rate risk is here towards the bottom. So it's not one of those first four or five things, but it is on here. I do think it's interesting the language they use in it. They talk about using scenario analysis. And I'm going to go back to what we said at the end of the last podcast. A lot of these things tie back to credit unions assessing their capital position. And that's exactly what. They're telling credit unions to do in this letter when it comes to interest rate risk. They're saying use scenario analysis, figure out do you have enough capital to support your interest rate risk? And we see them saying that in the capital part. We see them saying that with respect to credit risk with the loan portfolios. We see it again in their reserving. I think all of this is just pointing to and Way wanting credit to assess their capital positions and assessing interest rate risk is one part of that whole puzzle.
0: Great summary. And Todd, as you were kind of linking all those together, one thing that ran through my head is that you and I have recorded a podcast on net economic value, which to me kind of relates a little bit Interest rate risk is part of all these other things, but it's part of the net economic value. Any thoughts to add real quickly relative to NEV as it relates to any of these topics?
2: No, it's just one tool to measure interest rate risk. NCUA does focus on maybe NEV more so than they do income simulations or other ways to measure interest rate risk, just because it's boiled down to one number and they're comfortable with that one number and it Equate somewhat to a liquidation type value. I would just say listen to our podcast on NEV when Mark gets around to releasing it. I do have one other thought with all of these letters, and that's a COVID-related thought. COVID has created some huge challenges for society over the last couple of years. And it creates lots of uncertainties. It's uncertainties and that spills over to credit risk in your loan portfolio. It spills over to this fraud risk. It spills over to what's gonna go on with interest rate risk. It spills over to potential loan losses when you have uncertainty, it creates discomfort for the regulator. And when I look at this list of everything on here outside of the consumer financial protection, almost all of them can be tied back to the uncertainties created by the pandemic that we've been facing the last couple years. And that's not unique to NCUA. Every fragment of society has been touched by it. But I kind of see it in this letter that all of these get tied back to that COVID uncertainty. And Uncertainty creates discomfort for insurers and for a lot of other people for other reasons as well. And it creates a huge challenge for management of credit unions. You know, How do they assess capital? What do they do with all this deposit growth that they've been incurring and probably didn't plan for? Because I don't think anyone foresee something like this or what the fallout would be and the challenges that we're facing. But I see a lot of these just tied back to all the uncertainties and this imbalance created as we face this pandemic. I think that's a good
0: place to wrap up the priority portion of this letter, which segues us into the exam program update portion. And there are three items here that we will talk about quickly. The first one is NCUA Connect and MERIT. MERIT stands for the Modern Examination and Risk Identification Tool. NCUA has converted and trained their examiners on MERIT and has delinked themselves from ARIES, which had been the exam tool for quite some time. Any thoughts on NCUA Connect and MERIT?
2: It's interesting, Mark. I went through MERIT training twice before it implemented. And of course I retired before they implemented it. And they pushed implementation back a little bit because of the pandemic and because they couldn't get their examiners together and train them in person. Now, they ended up training them virtually, and they rolled it out, and it's being used virtually. This platform is very, very different than prior exam platforms, So The examiners are going through quite the learning curve. I've spoken to a couple of them since it's been rolled out. They have a love-hate relationship with it as they're struggling to learn it. There are a lot of things they do like about it, but I think they'll just be facing a challenge over the course of the year that as just they learn it. At its core merit is a risk management software, and it's just different than what the examiners are used to using. And I think once they use it for a few months, it will be fine and it creates a challenge for credit unions because now the credit unions have to learn a different system too because they have to log into merit and they use that for transferring files for their examiners and now they have this internal tracking provided by ncua on their or resolutions and exam findings and i haven't spoken to any credit unions on how it's worked out on their side but it's going to be a learning curve for credit unions too because this becomes kind of a focal point of how they interact formally with their examiners in terms of exchanging documents and saying, hey, here's what we've done to address concerns in your exam report. So it'll be interesting. I think in the long term, it will be a big positive for the agency. But with any new platform, there's a big learning curve and we'll be going through that for the first part of this year.
0: Yeah, change management and change can create challenges, like you said. So it's a learning curve. I've heard from a few clients that like some things. I heard from a few clients who have some dislikes. One of the things on the door module was while it tracks it, there's some neat things relative to tracking it. It was a little bit more cumbersome where they had to reply individually and they couldn't reply directly to NCUA with a full response. They had to do it piecemeal. But again, part of that's just the learning curve. And I fully suspect that this will be one. One item that we will have a podcast on down the road once we have a little bit more information from our clients and once NCUA has gotten through that learning curve. All right, this next topic is pretty interesting, the recording of official meetings. Any thoughts relative to NCUA talking about recording of official meetings in this letter?
2: I think it's just a reminder to the industry and maybe even a reminder to examiners too. Credits have always been able to record meetings. Generally, when you had a joint conference, the tape recorder was on the desk and the examiner and the supervisor, we all knew the meeting was being recorded. Now we've been in this virtual environment for going on two years. And I think it's just a reminder to everyone. I know in the virtual environment, There's a lot of different ways to record meetings. I think it's just a reminder to everyone that, hey, if you're going to record meetings, just make sure all the parties are aware of it and have knowledge of it. That's all. I think it's just a gentle reminder. And this is another one. It's a fallout from the whole COVID events and the fact that we're not meeting face-to-face anymore.
0: Excellent point. And then if the credit union does record it, the guidance points out the examiner has the discretion to request a copy of the recording. That comes from the examiner's guide. And anything basically that you communicate or NCUA communicates with the credit union, they should be comfortable that it could be quoted. So if you're going to say it, there really should be no problem with somebody recording it, but getting a copy, it would be something that would make sense as well. Last item before we wrap up, CAMEL's update. So NCUA went from CAMEL to CAMEL's recently, and on April 1 of this year, they will shift to the new rating system, and they've separated out liquidity and sensitivity. And Todd, you were a regional capital market specialist. You supervise regional capital market specialists. I'm imagining you may have some thoughts on this change.
2: Yeah, it's been a long time coming, and I don't know when NCUA first talked about it. It's been a long time, and they've talked about it off and on many times, actually, over the years. I do know last year, we had capital market specialist people in central office. They were tasked to study this. I think all the exam procedures, questionnaires, they're all geared up and ready to go. The agency was working on it most of last year, just waiting for formal board approval to do it. They have it now. I think credit will find it to be an improvement to their exam process when you separate that liquidity risk and interest rate risk, because they tend to go in opposite directions. When liquidity risk is high, interest rate risk tends to be a little bit moderate. When your interest rate risk levels are higher, liquidity levels tend to be a little bit lower. They really are totally separate. Liquidity is more of a short-term type of risk. That interest rate risk, we're more concerned of the long-term type implications. And so I think it's just better for everyone that we separate these and rate them separately because they're two very different topics and now we're catching up with the rest of the regulators and like I said I know NCUA was working on it most of last year so their policies procedures and things are ready to go so hopefully this is one that will be a very smooth transition for everyone involved.
0: I think you're right and it links up well with merit because Under the ARI system, which was built on CAMEL, there was no real reason to change that software, to add the S, to track the S. And when I was around in the office of the executive director, I remember discussions about making sure that when they built Merit, that it did allow for the S, so that when this date came, that there would be a good transition to it. So any closing thoughts here before I wrap up part two of our letter discussion, our priority letter discussion, gentlemen? Okay, great. Well... If you have any questions that came up from what I said, Steve said, or Todd said today, reach out, but also reach out if you would like to talk to me about how I might be able to assist you with my specialist's help so that you achieve the best possible exam results. And I can be reached at CUExamSolutions at marktricle.com or via my website at www.mark tricle.com. That's it for today. I'm Mark
2: Treichel, and I hope you join me again next time for With Flying Colors.